in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. And the apostle has begun the practical section of this book. We have saw the work of God in salvation really from beginning to end in the first part of this book. And now we're going to bring the Word of God down to how does, how does that affect the lives of those that God has regenerated and made new creatures out of. They've been adopted into the family. Now how ought we to live in accordance to the work that God has done? So uh, we have saw in the first couple verses, our bodies are to be presented a living sacrifice recognizing that there is a natural man, there is a spiritual man, God having performed His work of salvation in the inward man, now we are to yield our members, yield our bodies, not unto sin, to the pleasure and exaltation of self and the flesh, but to yield ourselves unto God, to be instruments of His glory in this world. And we do that. God has given us a means to help us in that labor because we know it's that warfare that Paul spoke about earlier in Romans. When I would do good, evil is present with me. But God has given us His Word that we wouldn't be conformed. And you know the world is continually trying to conform our thinking, whether it's in school or college or entertainment Everywhere that you look in the world, they're trying to conform you to think the way they would like for you to think. Well, God says don't be conformed to the world around you, recognizing that the world as a whole is evil, contrary to God and contrary to His Word. Don't be conformed by the world, but be transformed. Because we were a part of the world, we used to think as the world thought, now that we have been regenerated, we ought to be transformed. And that word is the same word from the Gospels when Jesus was transfigured. And His inward glory shone out. And Peter and James and John saw the glory of the Son of God there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we are yielding our bodies to in obedience unto God and that glorious work that God's done on the inside of the church is shining forth. And people are seeing, not ourselves, but the glory of the salvation of God that's within us. And we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our mind is to be renovated. The things that the world established, the traditions that the world has established in our lives are now to be torn down and cast out and the things of God are to be put back in their place. We talked about renovation last time that we tear out the things in our house that we don't like and when we're renovating we're putting back in new things that we do like. And so God is renovating our minds tearing down the strongholds and the things that the world and the devil has established, replacing them with the things of God. Now, how is our mind renewed? By the Word of God. We come and certainly a great advantage, and I don't want to make light of, the preaching of the Gospel, the teaching and, and instruction of the Word of God. God's grace the church with these gifts. He's... He's given men the gift and ability to do these things. And He's given those gifts to the church. 
that we might benefit and grow from that. But He's given us our own copy of the Word of God as well. And that we ought to apply ourselves in the search and in the study and in the, the digging of the Word of God, remembering that our, our desire is that our mind would be renewed and that our lives would be transformed from worldliness into the image of the Son of God. That we may prove. So the church is then proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the world then, with all of its ideas and philosophy and and thought, they think they know what the will of God is. But for the most part now, how separate is that thinking from what the Word of God reveals to me? So God's revealed His will to the church in the Word of God and our lives are there being renewed and renovated and transformed that our lives would prove what the good and perfect and acceptable will of God is to those that sit in darkness. So now we come to verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So I realize Greg talked about this verse two Wednesdays ago and covered this, but before we go any farther, let's talk about the elephant in the room here and the common misuse of this verse. That latter portion of this verse according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. You hear that verse taken, and it is said that God's give everybody, saved and lost, everybody that's been born into this world, God's give them all a measure of faith. But I believe if you just look simply at the wording of the verse, now He's talking to the church, the church being transformed, by the renewing of our mind, our bodies being a living sacrifice. For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you. So who is this? Who is every man among you? That's those that have been regenerated and that are a part of the church of the living God. Those that God has brought in from the world and saved and made a part of His family. To every man that is among you, according... So that word according, it's through. So according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So who has these me- the measure of faith dealt unto them? In this verse now, in this verse, those with the measure of faith are those that God's brought into the church. And to say anything more is to add something to the Word of God that's not there. And Greg read this verse as well. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the, the apostle, and it's the same man now. Paul wrote Romans. Paul wrote the epistles to the Thessalonians. Paul wrote, For every man hath not faith. So we've either got a contradiction here at Paul saying every man has faith in one place, And in another place, all men have not faith. Or 
the interpretation of this is those that are born again and that are in the church, they're only there because God's dealt to them a measure of faith that they might receive the gospel and that they might be saved. So that's all the time we'll spend on that. But don't, don't let a portion of a verse determine a doctrine and it not even be the meaning that that whole verse has. So he says, by the grace given unto me. Now Paul was given an authority and a position. Remembering this now, that, that Jesus was the chief cornerstone of the church of the living God. He was the first stone placed. He was the means that the rest of the building of the church would be constructed and established. And then you can see in Revelation 21, as John's looking on the holy city Jerusalem, that there's 12 foundations there. And in, in those 12 foundations were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now Paul was made to be one of those apostles. And Paul's been given a special grace. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that he is a wise master builder. He says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 8 that the Holy Ghost was working mighty in him. So what, what are these apostles doing? Well, they're taking that chief cornerstone of Jesus and through the Old Testament of the uh, prophets and Moses, <clears throat> they're preaching Jesus Christ and laying the foundation of the church. And so Paul's been given, Paul's given a grace that nobody alive today has. <clears throat> and there's not going to be apostles again in the future because when you're building a house, when you're building a, a building, how many times do you lay the foundation? Do you get three stories up and lay another foundation? There's only one. And so God laid the foundation with these 12 men and they had a special grace given to them. If you look through the Bible, me and Morgan talked about this just a couple days ago, but if you look through the Bible, you're going to find that the majority, and I'm just, I'm going to throw a number out, I'm going to say 90 to 95% of the miracles that you find in the Bible, they take place at three specific times. One was Moses when the children of Israel were in Egypt. Two was Elijah and Elisha in Israel. And three was Jesus and his three and a half years of ministry and the times of these apostles. <clears throat> I recognize that there's other miracles scattered, but as a whole, they're mostly grouped into those three times. Now why is that? Well, in Moses' day, you've got a man that's the children of Israel's been in Egypt for 430 years. They've not heard from God. They've been dwelling down there. They're content to dwell there. <clears throat> and here's going to come a man out of the wilderness and say, look, God sent me to redeem you out of Egypt and bring you to your own land. Now what are you going to say to somebody that comes out of the wilderness and says that. 
you're full of mud. You've lost your mind. But when, it, when that same man can put his hand in his bosom and pull it out and it's leprous, and you can see it and touch it, and then he can put it back in his bosom and pull it out and the leprosy's gone, or when that man can throw a, a wooden rod down and it becomes a serpent and he can grab it by the tail and it turns back into a rod, then there's some credibility given. So you see these miracles were an indication that what Moses was saying was the truth. Well the same for Elijah and Elisha. That was a time that the kingdom of Israel had fallen completely away from God. They had forsaken the worship of God. They had established idols and idolatry. And God is working, if you'll have it, a revival of sorts. And Elijah's preaching and prophesying the Word of God, well, how do we know that you're more important or any better than these 400 prophets of Baal? Because God's going to send fire down and He's going to consume the altar. The prophets of Baal are going to be destroyed. The dead's being raised and evidence that these men were the men of God. Now the same for Jesus. It had been 400 years of silence. No prophecy, no word from God. Here comes John the Baptist in the wilderness preaching. And then Jesus now. You're looking for a Messiah, a Savior, sent from God, from heaven, to be a king. And here's a man that by all appearances was born from a mom before she was married. He's got absolutely nothing to his name. He doesn't even have a place, according to the Word of God, to lay his head. The foxes have holes. The birds have nests. The Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. He's got nothing. He doesn't have any money to pay taxes. He tells Peter, go cast a hook. And there will be money in its mouth. You take that and pay. So this man, he, he doesn't look like a man sent from heaven to be the Savior of the world. And when he says, I'm the Son of God, you're going to say, this man is a fool. And that's exactly what they said of Jesus. But when this man can go to a tomb and call a man that's been dead four days back to life, that's a great indication that what he's saying is the truth. And so the apostles also... They had that power. They wrought many miracles. Why were these being wrought? It was evidence that these were the people of God, that this was the work of God, that this was the right way, and that the church was the approved family of God. So Paul's been given this grace. And if God gave Paul the grace to be a master builder and one that would lay the foundation of the church of the living God then it ought to be something that we all take notice of, wouldn't you say? Right. To every man that is among you, not just to a certain few, not to those that have offices, but to every single person that makes up the body of Christ. <clears throat> you know, you might look at Timothy and say, well, that's only to preachers. Or that's just to deacons. Or that's just to those that are the, the highest offices in the church. Well, you can't do that here. The Word of God clearly makes it clear and distinct that He's speaking to everyone 
no matter their level, no matter their status, every man among you, what is the number one thing that you think not highly of yourselves? Now here's, here's the number one problem that occurs in the church of God is when I think too highly of myself. And I think more highly of myself than I do you or than I do others. Or I trust in my knowledge. I trust in my ability. I trust in my strength. I trust in my goodness. I trust in my works. Paul says, think not highly, but think soberly. So that that word, that means without intoxication. And, you know, you can apply that to alcohol or to drugs. But I tell you, the, the pride of man is intoxicating. And it clouds our judgment. And as, as I begin to be puffed up in myself, my vision is distorted. You know, the way I look at you changes. What I think about you changes. And it's distorted by pride because I'm not thinking soberly. What is the sober way of thinking? God's dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know how I got into the family? God gave me faith and brought me in. You know how you got into the family? God gave you faith and brought you in. Now who's better than who in that picture? I would not have come had God not convinced me and drew me by His power and neither would you. So who's better than who? Who's greater than who? No, I tell you, what you have, you have by the grace and the goodness and the blessing of God. What your neighbor has, they have by the grace and the goodness and the blessing of God. And at any moment, we could be like Job and everything be taken away and we'd be left in dust and ashes with absolutely nothing. But did that change who Job was? When he was rich, did that make Job any better than anybody else? When Job was brought to ashes and all that he had was sores and friends and a wife that told him that he had sinned greatly and that he ought to curse God. Did that change who Job was? He was the same in both situations. His standing before God was the same. And so for me to think anything highly of me above you is absolute foolish thinking. It's not sober thinking. Because God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So listen to this in Matthew chapter 25. Parable of the talents. A very well-known scripture. Verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. So here's the picture. A man's taking a journey and he's going to give his stuff unto people that he trusts, that they would work and labor and take care of it. But whose goods is it? 
They belong to God. Who's determining who's getting what? Boy, I tell you this thinking of I've got what I've got because of what I've done and who I am. That's, that's bad doctrine. And that's bad thinking. But it's God's goods. And listen to what He says. Unto one He gave five, to another two, to another one. <coughs> who determined that? God gave those talents as God saw fit to give them. One more place in Galatians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll look more at this chapter a little bit later. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? So Paul's saying... And remember in the earlier chapters of this, it's revealed that here were people that, that were in constant and continual clashing and strife and argument with one another. And they were looking for every reason to exalt myself above you and you above me. And it even got to the place that they were arguing, well, I was saved when Paul was preaching. And Paul's a lot better than any other man and that makes me better than you. And another would say, well, I was saved when Apollos was preaching. And there's nobody as eloquent and as good a speaker as he is, so that makes me better than you. Paul here saying, look, I've, I've transferred this to me and to Apollos that all we're doing is watering and planting, but if anything's going to come out of the ground... And if there's going to be any fruit brought forth out of the vine, know that God is the one that is producing that fruit. <clears throat> so he says here, For who maketh thee to differ? If there's one in the family of God that's different from another, and we are all different, I don't deny that a bit. But who makes you to differ? Why is that? Why are there some that have the ability and are called to preach the gospel and many others are not? Why are there some that have the ability and are called to teach and others do not? Why are there some that's, that's called and chosen out to be deacons and others are not? See, I can't boast in what I am or what I've done because God is the one that's giving out these gifts. God's produced for the church as God sees fit. <coughs> these gifts of understanding, these gifts of prayer, these gifts of peace, the gifts of knowledge, all that God's given, we've got to remember where that comes from. And that there's no glorying for any individual 
in the body. But God has dealt that out to man. So, you think about that Scripture now, 1 Corinthians 12. What we're going to get into in Romans in the next four or five verses, he's going to talk about the body and the gifts that differ. Now, you think about this verse here. So I'm in 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. So he's saying here the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. That we ought to think soberly because God is the one that's dealing out these gifts. In 1 Corinthians he says there's one Spirit, there's one salvation, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, and we're all brought in the same way <clears throat> by the same means. But for the body to operate, there's got to be different members. So he says now in, in verse 4, Romans 12 verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. I realize this is elementary thinking in the flesh, but really spiritually it reaches depths that we're unable to reach. But you know, as, as we are, as God has put together our bodies, an amazing thing that God constructed when He built the body, we have many members, and they all do not have the same office. And it's, it's important. It's necessary that the body be that way in order for things to be accomplished by us. If the whole body saw, where would be the hearing? If the whole body heard, where would be the seeing? If the whole body was used to walk, what would we grab with? So you see, the fingers though they are insignificant maybe compared to the eyes, I'd a whole lot rather lose a finger than lose an eye, get to the function of the body, and for me to pick this up, I have to have them. For me to be able to ride and work, I have to have them. And the whole body works together. The mind, it uses the eyes and the ears and the nose, the feet and the hands, and the legs and all of the muscles in between and the lungs to breathe. See how the, the whole body comes together that we might go out and accomplish work and labor in this world. Though some are not as mighty as others, some are weaker than others, some may, may not have any comeliness, beauty or glory at all of themselves, and yet even those parts that aren't beautiful and that we desire to keep covered up, even those parts are necessary to the function of the body. And so that's the way man is. Why is man like that? Why is the human body like it is? 
That's the way the Lord made it. The Lord made man as He is. And so, as we and all members have not the same office, so they don't do the same function, (coughs) it's necessary that we have uh, eyes to see, that we have ears to hear, that our hands are there to grasp and to hold on to, that our legs are there to pick up the weight of this body and carry it through this world. They all don't serve the same purpose. They've all got different offices, but they're to the function of the body. So just like our bodies are like that, that's the way that the church is as well. He says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So God then, as He put together the natural body, He has put together the church. And He's put the church together as the church would, as He sees fit for the church to be together. And it's not by the wisdom or the construction of man that the church is as it is, but God has put it together. And God has given the gifts. God has given the ability. God has given the knowledge. He's given the understanding. He's given the grace. He's given the strength to everyone that they might serve and fulfill their office in the church that the purpose of the body might be accomplished. Is everybody a teacher? Is everybody a preacher? Is everybody an opener of the Sunday school? No, because if everybody's one thing, then who's going to fill the other places? You wouldn't have a body then. And so, let's look at some Scriptures as the Lord would lead. In 1 Corinthians 12, this whole chapter is about the body. We've already read a portion. But God's given the Spirit. Now, notice again in verse number 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. So there is one Spirit. And that same Spirit works in all of them that are saved. The manifestation of the Spirit's given to all. Everybody that's saved is, without fail, indwelt by the Spirit of God. But that Spirit uses each one of us in our office as God sees fit. So listen in verse number 11. We could look at this whole chapter. It all goes with what we're reading in Romans. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So again now, here is the body of the church, and the Spirit is giving gifts and abilities to those severally as He will and as He sees fit. So can somebody then that has a great spiritual understanding, can he soberly boast over others that has not the same understanding? You can't because God God gave you that. Well, why did God give you that? Why does God 
call men to preach? And why does God give ability to men to teach? For the edifying and for the good of the body. I remember Bible school here, the first time I ever heard John Wayne teach. The first time. The first time he ever got up. He sat down and, and I, thought, I thought then, God's give that man the ability to teach. Why did God give him that? So that he could come and, and teach me. And so that he could teach you. And so that he could teach the church. And that the body might benefit from the gift that God has given him. And that's why God calls men to preach the gospel. That the word would be proclaimed. And that every man and every woman might profit and be strengthened by the word of God. It's not so that one is above another. That's the opposite of the church. Jesus said, whosoever's the greatest, he's going to be your foot washer. The greatest is the least. So you can't think naturally about a spiritual body. There's not one above another, but my fingers, you know, my fingers don't say to the ear, boy, you're absolutely worthless. We could do without you. And I don't say that either. I've never looked at my hand and said, you know, you're, you're an awful uh, part of this body. I could do without you. And the body's, the body's never looked at its little toe and said, I don't like the way you look. I'm going to do away with you. You know why? Because it functions together as one. So for me to look on somebody else and say, you know, here's one. And if it's somebody that the Lord has indeed saved, that God is dwelling in, we could say, you know, the, the church would be better off without them. That's like the body saying, I don't need that finger right there. Let me just cut that off and I'll be better off without it. Is it possible to cut that off and the body be better off without it? Absolutely not. And so the body of Christ, there's not one more significant or more important than another. There's not. Somebody that we might not think much of might be a high priority to Him. As the family of God, we're all one body in Jesus. Another verse, verse 18. I'm still in 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it pleased Him. So God has set the members where they are as it pleases Him. Verse 22. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. 
Ain't it something how God has made this body to care for itself? You know, I can get stung, and this might be silly, but I can get stung by a yellow jacket while I'm weed eating on the back, and I'm reaching back there, and I'm running. I don't think about it, but that's the natural... You know why that is? The body's protecting itself from more. I know what causes that, and I want to get my body away from that. And it's a natural reaction. When you touch something that's hot, when you touch the top of the oven, you don't leave it there for a minute and decide what needs to happen, but the body jerks away. Because that hurts, that little spot, because that hurts, the whole body hurts. Well, there's the church. We're there for the good of one another, that there be no schism or separation in the body. Well, we can have a schism here. What's that mean? Well, we're going to have divisions. We're going to have cliques. We're going to have groups. And I'm going to love you, but I'm not going to love you. And I'm going to love this one, and I'm not going to love that one. I'm going to give this one more honor than I'm going to give this one the body is not meant to have schisms in it. The hand is not supposed to rebel against the leg. And if there's rebellion, if the hand and the arm is not working in sync with the rest of the body, I'm going to have a bad time, wouldn't you say? So the body's one. And we're to, in Ephesians, as he says, we're to have uh, to desire and to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So don't think highly of yourself above another, but recognize what we've got, God gave us. And if somebody else doesn't have that, it's because God did not give them that. And if they're weaker than we are, it's because God's given us a little bit of strength that we might go on. And so why are some... Stronger than others, not to boast over another, but to help them out. The body's there to aid itself, to protect itself, and to love every member as itself. Now that's the commandment of God. So he says in Ephesians chapter number 4, Ephesians chapter number 4, verse number 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So what are we looking for? We're looking for growth. That the body wouldn't be blowed around by every lie. But when a false doctrine rolls through, when we hear something that's not Bible, that we don't automatically go with that. But that we're able to say, wait a minute, that's not right. Discernment. That we would grow. And so how does that happen? But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. Now you think about the beauty of the body that my mind 
shuts my hand. And it does that with muscles and with nerves and everything is connected. It's connected to here. And if you cut that nerve ending, if you break my neck and sever that connection, then what's going to move? You're a paraplegic. So everything works because God has put it together by bands and by joints and by muscles and by nerves and it's all connected together with that whichever joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. There is blood, oxygen, and life in every part of the body. Do you agree? If there's a part that blood and oxygen cease to flow, it will eventually fall off dead. And so in the body of Christ, those that are saved and born again, there's life in every member. You know that? The life of the Holy Spirit is effectually, efficiently, actively working in every portion of the body. Maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. Edifying, the, the building up. You know what I ought to seek for? When I see you're weak, God help me to build you up a little stronger. That the body might edify itself. We don't have to go to the world for help and for guidance. God's put what's needed inside the body of the church for the edifying and the strengthening of itself in love. So the body's to look after the body. The body's to work on the body. When there's weakness, the rest of the body is there to help overcome that. When something's wrong with my knee, my other leg carries a lot of that weight. Ain't that something how that happens? And I'll walk. And my other leg will take the weight off of that till it gets to feeling better. When I've got a hurt arm or shoulder, when my neck's got a crick in it, my body will turn so my neck doesn't have to. And so there, you know, I can be mad and say my blame neck, my blame knee, the blame thing keeps getting hurt. How silly. So to look at somebody in the church and say, well, their blame feelings is hurt again. They ought to toughen up. I've thought that before. But you know, God help us as a body to be with one another, to strengthen one another, to the edification of one another in love. In love for one another. And so one more place. Colossians chapter number 2. And we're, we'll be out of time. Colossians chapter number 2, verse number 18. Let no man beguile you in your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. 
So what's he warning against here? Well, here are men, whether deacons or preachers or pastors or members, however. But here were men that were looking to take over the control and the leadership of the church. We're going to be the ones that decides who's doing what. We're going to be the ones that decide. Now, who decides when the church needs a pastor? What should the church do? We should pray to God. God, give us direction and leadership and show us the direction that we ought to go. When the church needs a teacher, what ought the church to do? God, would, would you show us who would be fit? Would you enable somebody to, to be able to take this office? Be able to teach the adults or the children? Well, here were people that wanted to, they wanted to set the head to the side and say, look, we're going to call all the shots. We're going to be the guide. Well, when the head set off of his place, I heard it. The body's dead. Even, even in medieval times, even at this time, they knew that. Beheading was a common type of execution. We cut the head off. There's no chance of survival. The body has a 0% chance of making it. So where does the church look? The eyes, the ears, the nose, the hands, the touch, all of the senses. It's all filtered and all of that information is put together right here. And so the church, whether we're the hands, the feet, the eyes, whatever our position, whatever our office, the body of the church is to be looking to the head for direction in every way. Not setting the head to the side. But God provides miraculously for His church as He sees fit. Each having their own gift given to them for the good and the edification of the body of Jesus Christ. Now whether that's in teaching, whether God would, through your study and thought on the Word of God, would give you a verse or give you a thought, whether God would, would give you a song and not just be words, but the Holy Spirit be that, that minister that's stirring that up and welling that up in your heart. God's give us that not to enjoy with ourselves, but that we might share that to the whole body of God. I've thought this before. Men, men preaching the Word and they've got a handful of men at their church. And I say it's a shame that, that, that such gospel and such ability and such preaching is only heard by just a few ears. It's, it's a shame, isn't it? But the body that's present, we ought to take advantage of the gifts that God has given us while we have them because they're God's. God could take them. God could take them. So we ought to take advantage of the gifts that God's given us and remember that it's to His glory, to His honor, and to His praise and the edification, the building up of the church. Anything that's to tear down a member of the body is not 
from God. It's earthly, sensual, and devilish. And remember this. Think on this. At any point in your life, have you ever wanted to alienate a part of your body from the rest of it? Have you ever wanted to pluck an eye out? Have you ever wanted to cut a foot off? But foolishly, man thinks that very thought in the church. I, that's, that's of the devil. The schisms and divisions are of the devil. That's all that's on our heart. Anything?